This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today we have with us world-famous Dr. Tim Deere. He's one of the pioneers and leaders in the world of pain management, neuromodulation. For those of you who don't know what neuromodulation is, it's a device that goes into your body that helps you with chronic pain issues. Tim Deere, he was a Marine and has probably hundreds of publications, heads up numerous conferences. So we're very lucky to have him on the podcast today. So Dr. Deere, thank you so much for joining us. Chris, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to join you today. So everyone would assume that you came from a very affluent family, things were gifted to you. There was this scandal with the universities where people were bribing for their kids to get into college. And, and you're an eloquent speaker, you're on stage, you're very poised, well-dressed. A lot of people would assume that you come from a very silver spoon background, if you will. So do you want to comment on that? Well, sort of a silver lunch bucket. My dad and both my grandfathers were coal miners in West Virginia, and they were doing deep mining, which is a, a pretty brutal lifestyle. A lot of injuries, a lot of uh, troubles and tribulations over time. My mother was a stay-at-home mother uh, who um, stayed home with me. I was an only child. We lived in a small coal mining town in West Virginia. A lot of great friends and great people. When I was about uh, 10 years old, my dad became disabled and uh, eventually left the state of West Virginia. And so my mother didn't have uh, a driver's license or a job at the time and um, had to go back and become an LPN. And it was uh, the two of us. And uh, so I did what I could to um, cut grass, uh, to shovel snow, things of that nature as a kid. And we got through those times um, with the help of um, our religion and our family and uh, friends. And, and uh, so I think it actually teaches a lot of life lessons uh, to see hardworking people, and then see turmoil in your childhood. And certainly if you get through that, okay, Chris, I think it becomes a, a good um, a life lesson for you to pass on to your children and other people you have the chance to impact later on. So I still felt very blessed. I didn't know I was poor, actually, to be honest with you, because all my friends were about the same socioeconomic uh, background. So we didn't have a clue, really. You know, we all felt very blessed to be in among a good community of people. So I remember I went out to visit you and... Um what struck me was, well, it's two things. First, religion isn't often spoken about in the field of medicine, but it did strike me that you had a Bible on your desk. And I had a question about how to deal with a difficult work situation. And it was interesting that you basically told me to turn the other cheek and be a better person. And it worked out very well. And the advice, I'm glad I took it because it worked out really, really well. But do you want to comment on religion and your thoughts on that? Well, sure, Chris. I grew up blessed to be exposed to my religion. And again, I think everyone has their own choices to make, and I don't judge other people or recommend what they do. I grew up uh, and I became a Christian uh, at a young age, and uh, certainly it's been part of my daily life since that time. Although we all sin and aren't perfect, that's, it's been very important to me. I always tell young doctors that uh, as you prioritize your life, you put God first, your family second, and then being a physician third, everything else below that. And so I think if you can keep that in your mind, we all fail to do that sometimes, but that's helpful. And I think um, whenever possible, you forgive people. And I think and the other important thing is not to be judgmental in your religion. Whatever your religion may be is, is up to you and your relationship with God, but you shouldn't judge others who have different religions or no religion. So 
I always feel like it's a very personal relationship and not one for me to uh, judge on others. I've seen miracles in healthcare, and uh, I've seen God be present in healthcare, in my opinion. And uh, when I see that, it's very inspiring to me. And it seems like with the divorce rate being where it is, you definitely walk the walk. You've helped a lot of other physicians, countless patients. But I think it's noteworthy. You've been married to the same wife forever. <laughs> really? Well, forever is a long time. We've been married 29 years. So getting close to 30 years now, she's a very patient person putting up with me and uh, my lifestyle of working and traveling and, and exercising. So uh, we're a good match and I've been very fortunate to have her. And then you were also a Marine, correct? No, that's not correct. That's all you I heard oh. you said at the beginning. Oh, so I thought you were a Marine. Uh, okay. No, no, no. So I actually uh, went through high school, uh, played college football, and then from college uh, right to uh, medical school. And then I think a lot of people get confused because I actually treated a lot of injured veterans with implantable devices. Oh, that's where I got um, it. Okay. So during the Iraq War, Iran War, there was a lot of um, physicians doing pain at uh, Fort Bragg and San Diego and up in Dayton who didn't do some of the more complicated implants. So I ended up implanting quite a few special forces soldiers and others. And many of those people went back to duty afterwards. And so I was recognized uh, at several meetings by the military. I think you saw the Golden Knights. I had implanted a few of the Golden Knights. And I think you saw an award they gave me in my office um, where they were actually pushed back to parachuting with the device in place. So it was those types of relationships. So I think it's not uh, uncommon. I think people get confused and think I was in the military. I just had the blessing to be able to help a lot of those really patriotic, amazing young people. Uh, and so when I think of myself having a pain somewhere, I feel like I should suck it up because I, I saw people with their arms and legs blown off who we put a device in, got the pain under control, and they went back and became very productive members of society. So certainly uh, my dad was uh, in the military, in the Army. My grandpa was in Normandy as a medic. My other grandpa was in, in Belgium during World War II. So long history of uh, military people in my family, but uh, I was not uh, in the military personally. Well, everyone serves in their own way. So pain management seems to be evolving very quickly, especially in the last few years. It seems to evolve from where we're giving just medications, doing steroid injections to really a very cutting edge field. Do you want to talk about some of the things you're most excited about in the field of pain management? Sure. I came to West Virginia from a train at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. I came back to West Virginia in 1994. And that was about the time, shortly thereafter, that we started seeing the increased utilization of opioids. Now, there are patients who need opioids. I'm not someone who would say no one should have opioids. But what we found was for years, we had opioids and we had injections of the epidural space. And that was about it. And then we got into some things that came along that weren't really evidence-based. So there would always be some exciting therapy that didn't pan out because they didn't do the proper research. So in the late 90s, I became really committed to research. And uh, I'm a, in private practice. I do have an affiliation with WVU, West Virginia University, my alma mater. So I'm really happy about that. But, but I started focusing on, on clinical research and development of devices and trying to really come up with new devices that would be better and help people more, new procedures we could do. And so really what excites me the most, Chris, is the movement away from larger procedures to doing things less invasively in the proper patient. So what that entail, and I'll briefly mention a few things. We can go in more detail if you'd like. But Please, example, the more detail, the better. When spine now, we're doing a lot of um, things that patients aren't quite bad enough for a larger spine surgery, or they may be too ill. We're doing things like interspinous spacers to open the spine for stenosis. We're taking out ligament, decompressing the ligament, minimally invasive lumbar decompression of the ligament. 
We're leaving to the product where you can actually heat the vertebral body. So there's all these things we can do now through a small incision about the size of my fingertip that in the past would have either not been treated at all or required a larger surgery. Now, there's still some patients who need the larger surgeries, and I'm really fortunate in West Virginia to have some great neurosurgeons to work with here. But in many cases, we can treat someone with less invasion, and it's much more cost-effective for society. It costs less to do some of the smaller things. The other things that really excite me is, as you know, I was involved in the development of something called dorsal root ganglion spinal stimulation, which um, we developed in the very beginning. I did the first case in the world in 2008. And now what I'm really excited about, that therapy is evolving. We're finding new uses of it. We find it are important for maybe some uh, potential new diseases. So I'm looking at expansion to new patients based on evidence. So not just expansion to expand, but expansion based on really level one prospective studies of dorsal ganglion stimulation. I helped design a paddle knee, which is a, a way a surgeon can put a lead around some area where we may not be able to get in with a needle. And it's a very small paddle, non-invasive. So I think that will expand to patients with bad spines and spinal disease. That's very exciting. The feedback loop mechanism study that I'm running with uh, Dr. McKell and Dr. Levy is very, to me, very exciting around the world. It's a new way to um, potentially deliver electricity to the cord. And I just completed a new study looking at um, the derivator-based burst waveform where actually I looked at using less electricity. So we found that someone who got 24 hours a day electricity might respond just as well to 1.8 hours of electricity a day. And to me, that's very exciting stuff because we may use a less electrical current in a more smart way to the spine and change outcomes long-term and improve tolerance. So that's a very quick summary of some things that excite me at the moment, but uh, those are all things I think could be very important. So for anyone who isn't in medicine, there are rules about what physicians can and can't disclose. So if, say, I treat a patient, I can't discuss details of their case unless they sign off on something called the HIPAA compliance release form so I can do a, a case report. But or do you have any stories of, that you can share of people? Because the science is fascinating if you're in the field of pain. But if you're a regular person, you're, they may be thinking of this thinking, well, that's great that you're doing this great science stuff, but how does it really apply to me or someone I, I may know? Yeah, well, I'll share a couple that people have given permission to talk about their stories and have actually been on social media and on television and things of that nature. And then, you know, we see a lot of great things here and there. But one of the early cases that really touched my heart was I had a, we talked about the military, I had a young soldier who had been a parachuter. He had, his parachute didn't open. And uh, he actually, unfortunately, broke almost every bone in his spine. He tore his aorta. He became partially paralyzed. He was in a wheelchair and he, got, he was on high-dose methadone, which is an opioid that's used for both addiction, but also used for pain. And uh, his wife left him. Dad and mom, fortunately, were young enough to help him, take care of him. And I met him because he had a condition that required a special type of implant. At the time, he was being treated up at Dayton at the military base there in Dayton, Ohio. And they were great doctors. They just didn't do that type of implant. So they sent him to see me and we were able to put an implant in. And within 12 months, he'd weaned off all of his medications. He had um, gone back to no longer parachuting, but back to an active full-time duty. About two years later, he became married again and actually had a child at year three or four. And as I watched him progress, and now he's still being uh, using spinal cord stimulation. He's on no opioids and now he's followed up in Dayton. But watching him change his life, Chris, was to me uh, fabulous. And he shared his story nationally with a lot of other soldiers. And mm -hmm. he helped a lot of people who had no hope, if you will, in, in those cases. So that's one case that really was impactful. Another really impactful case where the patient shared her story was a patient who was a professional. She was a, a nurse midwife who had severe bilateral foot pain and required oxycodone. And the oxycodone made her have trouble functioning. But even with that, she had severe pain. 
And when Dorsey Ganglion got FDA approval, she did have severe nerve pain in both her feet. So she was a, a good candidate for that therapy based on our evidence that we talked about before. And she's really done two things. One, that she's gotten back to her normal lifestyle for the most part, back to doing everything she wants to do. Secondly, she again became a, a great help to other patients who had kind of given up hope, who held you know, the medications like gabapentin and other drugs for neuropathy or nerve damage. She'd had surgery on her feet causing the nerve damage, but she also had some neuropathy going on as well. So, so I think when you see patients who give other patients hope, Chris, to me, that's the most rewarding because it's not just about them, they're also giving back. And that's very, I think that's very wonderful that even someone in their worst times when they're hurting can give back when they actually get a good response and find some hope. Because sometimes people lose hope with chronic pain, as you know. And then you also talked about that other device, that inner spinous spacer. So a lot of people are apprehensive about undergoing surgery. It's a bigger procedure. Not everyone, even in the best of hands, not everyone will do well with spine surgery. But do you want to talk about that spinal spacer device? Yeah. So in the past, there were some large spacers. And what a spacer is for those listening is it's a device that we put in through an incision about the size, I'd say about a quarter inch incision up to half inch incision. And we actually go in with a tool that opens up the spine from the backside where we're not going near the spinal cord and we're opening up the vertebral bodies. And you know, you have to be a proper candidate on your imaging, on your MRI, on your CT. But basically what we can do is open up a level without the other option might be to take the bone out and the ligament out surgically which sometimes is needed, but in many cases, it's moderate stenosis. The studies show that what we can do with the spacer may be just as successful as a larger surgery with less risk. So we had, again, and going back to our patient stories, I had a patient that was really very healthy. He had really had a, a really high functional lifestyle. He walked his dogs, he took his grandkids to the park, and over about two-year period, he got worse and worse. He had epidural steroids, didn't help him. He was given pain medication, didn't help him. He saw the surgeon, he was 78 years old, and the surgeon said, well, we can do a two-level decompressive surgery on you at L3, 4, 4, 5, but you might not be able to you know, do well because you're 78 and you have some health issues. So we were able to go in and do a two-level spacer. He was one of the first 10 or so I did. And I, he came back for his one-year visit about, I guess, six months, a year ago, and he was back to the park, back with his dogs, doing everything he wanted, off-all medication. And so, and he found his walking tolerance went from one block up to three, four miles a day. So it's not just about pain relief, it's about functional improvement. And, and I think that's a good example. Now, had he failed that, he could have still had the bigger surgery. But he and the surgeon, and the surgeon's the one that sent him over to see me because they didn't really want to put him through the risk of the surgery because of some cardiovascular issues he had. So his risk of the larger surgery and bleeding would have been pretty high considering all those things. So those are the types of cases where, again, you see functional improvement, which I think is really rewarding. And then you mentioned, just to get into a little bit more detail, so if anyone's thinking of a spinal cord stimulator, there are different brands with different pros and cons of each brand to really inform people because there isn't a lot of information out there on the different brands or different programming options. Um, and often people will come to the office and they're just said, here's a stimulator, maybe pick one of them out of the available brands. And there isn't really a lot of dialogue as to why would they choose one over the other. Any comments on that? No, I think that's a really good area of discussion. Certainly at any one time in the field, I always think there's devices that are better than others, but that may change in a year. It may change in two years. And so as doctors, we want to keep 
looking and watching what happens. And I've used so many different devices over the years. In fact, uh, I think even last week, I think I implanted three different companies' devices and different people for different reasons. But I think the things you need to ask yourself is, ask your doctor, what's best for me personally? Is there anything about my case that you think would be important? For example, some people don't want to charge their device ever. And so they may prefer a device where you don't have to charge it. But you have to then, as a doctor, ask, would that device have a good chance of helping them? Other people may not mind charging the device, but that device may not help them as much. And then there's things like, for example, in sacral nerve stimulation for incontinence, there's a device you don't recharge, it's bigger, and then there's a really, really small device you charge once every you know, two to four weeks. And it's not in the United States yet, it's in Europe. But many women prefer that smaller device because they don't want to have to deal with a larger device under their skin. So there's cosmetic issues. There's all those factors you have to think about. But the biggest thing for me, is it going to have a good chance of long-term success based on the studies that have been done and people like them? And if you have a study that's been done that matches your health, matches your, your demographic, well, then as doctors, that's probably our best choice. The good news for patients is, though, it's the same surgery for me, usually either way. And so I'm willing to put whatever device the person asks for, unless I think it's contraindicated. Uh, the other exception to that rule, Chris, is dorsal ganglion stimulation is a very easy procedure once you learn to do it. Some doctors don't have the hands to do that procedure. It requires very specific placement on a nerve. So if your doctor has good hands, good technique, she or he might be a good person to implant that device. But you may want to ask your doctor, how many devices have they done? What's their experience with one or another, for example? And you may want to go travel in some cases, you know, someone might see me and I may feel like you're a better doctor to implant a device because you've done more of them in your career. And, you know, maybe in your fellowship, you did something I didn't do because my fellowship was 20, what, 25 years ago. And yours was uh, a few years ago. So sometimes I would ask the doctor, well, you know, if you didn't do this procedure, who would you have to do the procedure for you? And most of us are pretty honest. You know, I, like, a lot of times I'd say, I don't do that type of procedure. Dr. Machado at the Cleveland Clinic would be a better person because he does retrograde paddle beads in the cervical spine something I can't do. So there's those types of examples. So it's the choice of device. It's a choice of company, choice of the, where the device goes. And then it comes down to who's the best doctor to put it in. And then lastly, and this is important too, what's the level of service for the patient? This is not like some, a doctor giving you a pill and you go home, you take the pill. Your doctor, let's say, for example, Chris, you implanted a device in someone, and then the technical people from the company will have a lot of technical things they're going to need to do, like a pacemaker company, to support that device. If they don't have good technical support for the patient, then that device, even though it may be better than the other device, could fail. So the other thing the doctor has to ask himself or herself is, do we have good technical support to help our patient? Those are very, very valuable questions. So right now in the field of pain, there are several societies where doctors go to learn, continue to keep up with their skills, learn information. You and a group of other very esteemed physicians are starting a new pain society. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So I've been involved in many societies over the years. Um, just to name a few, I was the chairman of the American Society of Anesthesiology's Pain Division for four years, uh, which is a great society, 50,000 anesthesiologists. But pain isn't the primary focus there. It's a, a focus, a small focus. I was involved very heavily with the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, which is a great society. I was on the board of NANS, which is the North American Neuromodulation Society for several years, and the board of several other American Society of Interventional Pain, another great society that does a lot of good things for patient advocacy and utilization, American Academy of Pain Medicine. So all these societies have good functions. 
But many times they're doing duplicate work and they're doing very similar things, all of which are very important. And unlike some fields like cardiology, there isn't a go-to one society. And I think there were, we'd all be better off. I've been the president of the International Neuromodulation Society in the past, Chris, which, as you know, really fosters international communication. And for patients out there, it's really important that we communicate because there may be a great study in Australia or Belgium or London, somewhere around the world that we actually can learn from. And then when we design American studies, we can take that information and design a better study. Or we find the product isn't being used correctly and we can change the way it's utilized. Or we find the product's been used better in Europe than America and we can change our practice. So the international community to me, very, very important. And that's important for patient access. As we expanded recently, when I was president, we opened up a society in India. And my last day as president, we opened up a society in Russia. Uh, we opened up a society in Colombia and Brazil. And so we, we've had all this great growth around the world for access. So I think there's many good societies. What I felt was lacking, though, Chris, was let's say, for example, someone came out of fellowship five years ago, and he or she has complicated cases they want to talk to somebody about who maybe have been out 20 or 30 years. And you get older folks who've been out for 20 years, but now they have a new technique they want to learn. And they learn that technique, but they feel uncomfortable asking their younger colleagues a question because they feel like they should know. So we created this society, the American Society of Pain and Neuroscience, really for several reasons. Dawood Saeed from Kansas, uh, who's an academic uh, expert in our field and uh, a leader in the field in many ways, he and I created this uh, probably about, I'd say, really officially this past summer. So about six months ago, and I think we got our final nonprofit status uh, just about four months ago. But really, it's to foster communication between young doctors and older doctors, to really foster mentoring among those groups, to foster a young doctor to do more research and become more advanced in the field and really to change the way in which we actually try to, to develop new leadership. And what I mean by that is many times there's been professional jealousy. So let's say you start doing well in your practice. And there's another doctor who's your age around the country who says, well, he's not very good. I, he's not a good doctor. You, know, you should use me because I'm better. That's really not what we should do to help our patients. We should say, you know what? Chris is doing great work. We might say Lisa's doing great work in Hawaii. We might say uh, Jeff's doing great work over here. And what we do is what are we all doing together that we can learn from each other and make each other's careers better? Because it doesn't help the patient any if your research project fails. It helps the patient if your research project succeeds. So the main goal of Aspen is, American Society of Pain and Neuroscience, is to encourage and mentor each other in a non-jealous manner, where there's no professional jealousy, but professional advocacy of each other to make each other more successful, which will help the patients do better long-term and advance the therapy. So that's been our main goal. We also have a transitional research committee led by Christian Chakravarti and Kate Meacham, which is off to a phenomenal start, setting new guidance and new recommendations in science and research. So part of it's that mentoring, advocacy of each other, helping the field advance type of relationships. The other part is advancing the science. And I think it's going to be a very unique, special society. Not meant to be very big. We're not trying to get rid of any other society. We're meant to, to be really just make the field better in general. So to become a member, what is the process right now? There's a registration process online. Uh, 
the website went live, uh, I think just a few weeks ago after we got our, and you apply to be members and then our executive board looks at that and makes sure we feel like you're well-trained and have the right mentality. Once you are a member though, we expect you to be a good citizen. And, and as I said before, be an advocate of each other that are doing good work and not be disruptive to the field and, and really recommend good practices, which is perspective research, evidence-based, being polite <laughs> to each other, all those things. We want to foster this great community of people that really want, are cheering for each other, Chris, that want each other to do well. Uh, if you come to our annual meeting in July in Miami, it's July I think, 25th through the 27th down in South Beach, uh, You part of Retreat, you can become a member there. The membership fee, we've kept it $100, uh, which is... Which is very cheap compared to other societies. Yeah, we're not trying to make a lot of money on this society. We're trying to make the society make each other better. So we've kept it the, the price of being a member extremely low. I think it's the lowest there is in the whole field. And then we've given fellows and residents free membership. So they're not charged anything. And, and uh, I think that'll also be good because when I was a fellow and resident, I didn't have any money. And so one of our goals is to involve those folks. So we obviously want them to get involved and not have to worry about the finances of it. And uh, so as, as time goes by, we'll get more grants to do more projects, uh, to set new standards. And I think this um, society will become a, a good home for anybody who wants to be part of the of the both U.S., but also we're bringing in international members now from Australia and other places to really a society that's kind of unique in that if you want to come there and get advice and love from your friends, you can do that. And that's really a a unique setting. So I'm very excited to be a member. I think something that you said was interesting and to highlight that point, some of the pain societies for part of the conversation is really directed to pain physicians, but for anyone else who's listening, that's fine. Some of the pain societies are not taking care of their members. People will join, but really it's not um, monitored where you can be aggressive or say nasty things about other members and Really, the societies don't prevent that or limit that. Whereas in your society, you can vote people out. That's correct. If the executive board had five members to felt you were being not keeping our mission of helping advocate good their physicians to do better and good work, then we would ask you to leave the society because you wouldn't be fitting into our whole thought process that by improving each other, we improve the field, improve patient care. And so that's right. We can do that. The other thing about our society I think is interesting, Chris, is that you know, we have a charitable part of our society. We have a, a 5K run every meeting every year where we raise money for different charities, make a wish, uh, things of that nature. This year, Iron Aid, which is an Iron Man based medical charity. So we really are trying to give back as well. So we ask our members if they have any donation thoughts. And so and the money doesn't stay within the society. We give that money all away. So those are the types of things we're trying to do to be kind of unique. And where does that uh, money go? Well, we picked different charities. Last year, it was Make a Wish. This year, we're doing Iron Aid, which is a new charity with Iron Man, uh, which is just getting formed, which will be, for example, let's say you're racing in Malaysia and they don't have enough money to vaccinate children. Well, then part of that money would go to a, a certified charity. And again, we're working out the final details with Iron Man on this, but let's say we raise money at a meeting here in, in Miami in July. Any money we would raise them would go directly to that charity and hopefully improve the ability to get vaccinated, for example, for young kids who may may not have that ability. I know in America, some people choose not to, but in countries where they can't afford to have vaccinations, and that's just one charity I've looked at so far that we're looking at. So anything that has to do with the healthcare area, we're in, in areas of needs. And that could be in West Virginia or Chattanooga, Tennessee, or you know, Indonesia, wherever. It's just things that we're going to work with the Ironman Foundation to get that up and running now, which I think hopefully really good for people around the world who need healthcare assistance. You know, last year there was a project in Puerto Rico I was part of. It was just wonderful where we went uh, to an area that had had hurricane 
damage. So hopefully we can pick a project every year that our members will feel proud of to be a part of. And we'll let the board of directors determine what that is over time. And it sounds like you're definitely creating a culture of, of support and generosity and really making the members good global citizens. But as an interesting note, so you're also an Ironman competitor. Yes, yeah, so it's been one of my passions is uh, Ironman triathlon, uh, endurance running. And Isn't that really painful? That sounds just painful, honestly. That sounds you know, really it, painful it, it's not painful till the end of the swim, the end of the bike, <laughs> and end of the run. But uh, Hawaii, which I'm going my, my sixth Hawaii this year, Ironman Hawaii, uh, the bike gets pretty painful on the way back to Kona because the wind is so hard on your neck. When you get to be my age, uh, your neck gets a little stiff, and that's pretty tough. And then the, the swim gets pretty tough the last half an hour or so. And then the run, I enjoy running, so the run doesn't bother me. Endurance running, I'm getting ready to do the Badwater 135-mile run in Death Valley in July. That endurance running is much more painful than Ironman. So, so wait, so say that one more time. So you're going to run how far? I'm normally focused on 100 milers like Leadville, which is in Colorado <laughs> at altitude, but actually was accepted into the uh, Badwater 135-mile desert run, uh, which is a, a one-time event. You have 48 hours to go 135 miles from the bottom of Death Valley up to Mount Whitney in July. So uh, Do you sleep my- or do you just run straight? Well, you could sleep. You have 48 hours. You sleep, you're probably not going to finish. So you really don't sleep. So you just go for 48 hours. You, well, I hope not. I hope to be done in 40 is my goal for that race. That's a, it gets a, Last year, it was 127 degrees there. So I don't know if I can make it uh, in 40 or not, but my goal is to be done under 40 hours. But the heat is a big obstacle there. Even at nighttime, it's close to 100 degrees that time of year. So I have to ask, so you're very busy with your private practice, your publishing, you're starting a new pain society. What's your comment to people who tell you, I just don't have time to exercise? So every day I set my alarm for 4.32, 4.33, somewhere in there, and I get up and I either swim or bike uh, before work, uh, depending on what my coach, uh, Matt Dixon, recommends. And then after work, I run every day. And then like this morning, I did four hours. I, I ran 15 and biked for two hours. So you just have to really put it into your schedule. And I remember I said early on, God, family, work. Part of your family commitment is staying healthy. Many doctors, uh, as you know, don't exercise, eat terribly. They give their patients advice they don't take, and they have a lot of stress. And so next thing you know, they're 40 years old and they're having heart attacks. So I think it's real important that uh, we uh, stay active physically and uh, try to stay fit as part of our family commitment. You're definitely walking the talk. So you're also coming out with a textbook. I have to plug myself in this one, but I feel very lucky to have two chapters in your textbook. But do you want to talk about your textbook? Well, I think the Ferguson chapters definitely are some of the best chapters, so look forward to that. <laughs> Thank you. I've been involved in several books over the years. We've had books on interventional techniques, myself and Dr. Dewan. We've had some great atlases with Dr. Pope and myself, and been involved in the American Academy of Pain Medicine's uh, large textbook in the past. But most of those textbooks are either very, very wordy, or they're very atlas-based, which is mostly pictures. So we established a textbook of my editors, you know, my co-editors, uh, Dr. Provenzano, Dr. Pope, Dr. Lamer, myself, um, and then authors like yourself, where we actually can make sure that there was good content, but also in the chapters that are procedure-based, there's an atlas feel because there's a lot of uh, pictures and photographs and x-rays and drawings. So it's a mixture of an atlas and a textbook. It'll be kind of unique in that way. It's not the, the 16,000-page Bonica book, that's a, which is a great book. It's all writing, and it's not the Dear Atlas, which is all pictures. It's a mixture. So I think people will find it pretty unique in that regard. And I think the chapters individually will all be very helpful to different people for different reasons. And for any of the, the pain physicians out there that are wondering, when will that be released? 
Uh, it's called Dear Sex Book of Pain. It'll come out, we think, uh, probably in June, June or July. So it'll be available for the fall. And um, I think that's the time where most of us come to meetings together. And uh, I'm hopeful it'll be a, out July 25th in Miami when we get to that first meeting, but we'll see. As you know, it, there's a proofing and editing, and then there's another more editing, and there's copyright and all those things they have to do. So it does take those uh, Springer's publishing this book. It does take them a while to get these things done. So for any of the pain physicians or anyone who just happens to be really interested in pain, I would highly recommend that textbook. So um, Dr. Deer, any closing thoughts or questions, anything you want to leave people listening with? Well, I'll say a few things, Chris. I think, first of all, congratulations to you for trying to educate all of us. I know you're not doing just pain. You're doing other things that are important in the field. And I think it's important that we educate each other about different issues. So thank you so much for inviting me today and what you're doing not only just in this podcast, but also in your daily life. I see you doing a lot of teaching and educating people around the country when you travel and in your hometown. Secondly, I I do think that um, we have a global community and we need to be good physicians, but also good citizens. And I think that that message uh, you and I discussed today is important for young physicians that you need to be um, acting locally to do, to make your communities better, to make life better for the children of your community and, and to make like life better for the elderly of your community. So those are goals we should all strive for. And that's a goal that many times we fail to reach and we all have our faults, but I think those are great goals and and to encourage each other to do so. I'll say that it's a fairly well-known saying, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And it sounds like you're definitely creating a community that anyone could be very proud to be a member of the society, just with its positive outlook and its very supportive nature of its members. Well, thanks, Chris. And again, I appreciate you, uh, asking me to chat with you. As you know, I had bronchitis three weeks ago. We tried to talk. I was in Aspen and I couldn't speak. So it's still there a little bit, surprisingly, but uh, I am speaking well enough now that hopefully people could hear me well, despite my Appalachian accent. Fantastic. And again, you're an inspiration. I think I'll go walk around the block now. (laughs) So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, sir. Have a great night. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.